Father in heaven, we thank you for this day that we can gather and uh, for the freedoms that we enjoy in this uh, country. We just pray that you'll be with our leaders, give them wisdom as they lead our country. Uh, thank you for the example of Daniel, good administrative skills and his obedience to you, Father. Just pray that uh, we and in our country will follow this type of example. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have uh, Daniel open us in song as well. Thank you. 
Then your last chance to ask questions, but I encourage you to ask questions. So, um, thank you, Daniel, for uh, leading us in worship, setting the tone of our heart, um, and praise the Lord. It's a great Sunday. Um, who can tell me where we're at in Daniel? Who can give me a? Because if I summarize it, it'll take too long. So, <laughs> Who can tell me where we're at and what we've done so far? There you go. <laughs> That's cheap. <laughs> so I, I kind of what's the what's the major theme of Daniel? God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Explain God's sovereignty to me as Daniel explained it to the world and to his people. What does it mean that God is sovereign? That's what Daniel wants to help us understand. He has authority over heaven and earth. He has authority over heaven and earth. Okay, so that means uh, on earth he's sovereign over all of the events of history, the epics of time. He's sovereign over uh, the life and death of men, the affairs of men. He's sovereign over governments and administrations. He's Sovereign over, um, how did I say it here? Yes. Sovereign over uh, humanity. Judgment is certain. That was the story of, of Belshazzar. He's sovereign over the laws that we have established as part of our order of society. He's sovereign in the presence of evil. So, so what does that tell us? If he's sovereign in the presence of evil, what does that mean? I think this is an important question for today. Can you repeat the question? <laughs> uh, so the statement, the statement here that I wrote is, <clears throat> God is sovereign in the presence of human evil. What does that mean that he's sovereign in the presence of human evil? sense that uh, nothing occurs apart from God allowing it. And in fact, God can actually use the events that, that people orchestrate or angels orchestrate against God in rebellion. God can use that as part of his redemptive program. That he knows the end from the beginning, nobody and nothing can thwart his will. Uh, so in that sense, his will will be done. And we can uh, view that as uh, an absolute uh, authority and power, and, that, and we understand that things that God decrees, that happens. What he decrees is. 
That is the nature of reality. But he also has a permissive will that he allows certain things to occur. We don't understand that. We don't understand why certain things occur. We don't understand why uh, armies would come and destroy uh, nations that really don't have a conflict against the army. Right? Why, why there is expansionism in the minds of men and a, a lust for power. We don't understand those things. Uh, in fact, when you see evil as it really is, it defies understanding. It defies logic. It's something that is fundamentally wrong, and it makes no sense. The same thing is true about God's love. Not in that it's fundamentally wrong, but it's fundamentally right. And it also makes no sense. And that love defies logic just as evil defies logic. But we understand that love is greater. In fact, Paul in his discourse in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says that that is the greatest. You know, There are things that endure and uh, have... Um, a continual presence throughout all of God's economy, love, faith, and hope, right? And yet, one of these is, is uh, preeminent above all of the others, and that's love. And in fact, love can't be defeated, and that was demonstrated on the cross, that the love of God for his people could not be defeated by death. So, and yet it makes no sense that a God who should just say, okay, I'm done with this, um, it certainly isn't the way that I desire. I'm just going to wipe it clean and start over and leave nothing. But rather, he, he chooses to redeem, to save that which he has created that's gone wrong. Right? That doesn't make sense. And uh, we see that in our relationships uh, as well. We see that in our relationships with our children. How many of you that have children have had the thought that, man, I'm done with this, I just want to wipe that kid out and be done and we'll start with the next one? You know? And yet we don't. We don't do that because we love our kid. Right? Um, how many of us have been frustrated in a relationship with a spouse? We say, okay, man, I'm, I'm done with this, but we're not. Love wins out. Right? And that God tests, tests love in us as, we're de, as that's being developed. Um, and sometimes that, that test, that challenge is hard. But nonetheless, what endures in the end is love. And what we see is that God's love for his people, even in the face of evil, um, God's not defeated. And that's what he wants to communicate to his people that we have a sure hope, it's a certainty, what's going to occur. Regardless of what, what the world says is happening, what God's plan is, is that we would be his people in his place, in his city, in the city of God, in his presence, that there will be no need for the sun to light the city. He will be the light of it. That's what it tells us in Revelation about what we call heaven what it means to be in God's presence. And that that is a certainty and, and that his people in the midst of a very challenging time needed to hang tight to that. 
needed to hold fast. And that's what chapter um, 10 through 12 is about. It's about, uh, in this case, uh, what would happen in the annals of history throughout the, the epic that was about ready to occur in the Persian rule, the Grecian rule, and later the Roman rule, um, and that God's people would be oppressed to the point of almost being wiped out a couple of times. And yet they would not only endure um, because God chose that for them, but that ultimately Messiah would come. And Messiah would set things right. That's the meaning of the word justice, right? To restore that which is right. That the just king would come. And we actually saw the introduction of the just king in chapter 9. And then what follows is, okay, now we know that the just king is coming. Now there's this whole block of history that needs to occur in God's program that brings us to the point of Messiah and actually brings us into the presence of Messiah ultimately in the end, the very end. And that's what's introduced. So I, I uh, circulated around, and I don't know, I only made 25 copies, so probably not everybody got one. But uh, basically it's a timeline that kind of takes us through chapter 11, and uh, let me take a look here at what we got. Chapter 11. Um, so it starts out with uh, kind of a summary, starting with Alexander the Great, going from 356 B.C. all the way to the introduction of Herod, Herod the Great, one of the Hasmonean kings, um, and that he would then rebuild uh, the temple in that day was glorious. As, as Bob uh, preached last week out of Haggai, that uh, the people were actually to rebuild the temple and to bring that place of God's presence with them uh, back. It, the Sol- Solomon's temple had been destroyed uh, by Nebuchadnezzar and uh, completely razed, taken to the ground, and they were to rebuild. There was this later Hasmonean king, Herod, that would come along in... Uh, around 60 B.C., and he would actually um, rebuild that temple in its glorious state as it would have been in the day of Jesus. That temple was subsequently destroyed in 70 A.D., and the remnants of that you see today. So if you go to Jerusalem today and you go to what they call the Western Wall, that is part of the, the temple platform. And if you look up to the temple platform, today there's a couple of mosques up there. There's the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is one of the uh, great holy teaching mosques, and then there's um, the Dome of the Rock Mosque, which is um, the, uh, that's the one that you usually see, has the, the golden dome that you see when you look at Jerusalem pictures today. Um, and that was, that's sacred to the Muslim people because that's over the rock where um, supposedly Abraham uh, would have offered his son, in their words, Ishmael, uh, as a sacrifice in obedience to God. We understand that story is that God offered the son of promise, which was Isaac. And that this, so this area there, what you see today that was rebuilt um, by Herod, was a sacred place. It's kind of a high hill. And I can show you pictures of it if you're interested. But if you look at Jerusalem, it's kind of the crown uh, 
piece of Jerusalem. So it's the high point, and the city is around it. And uh, so that's, that's what this timeline takes you through. It takes you through when the temple was uh, destroyed and had been rebuilt in its uh, nascent form uh, by uh, Zerubbabel and, and the later leaders that came out of captivity. And then uh, we understand that at the end of the Persian rule, which the first uh, four verses are going to tell us about a little bit about the Persian, Medo-Persian rule with uh, Cyrus and Darius um, and Artaxerxes and how that rule came to an end and it was a rule of law, that's when law was established um, and then a great warrior king came along Alexander and that's where we're going to pick up the timeline because most of this is about Alexander and his descendants it's about uh, this uh, Seleucid and the Ptolemy dynasties, the two conflicting the powers of the north and the powers of the south, and how they battle against each other. And there are many timelines that you can look up, and I've just provided one here um, that gives you the kings, who the kings were of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and when they reigned. And some of them are really important, like this guy, uh, Ptolemy III. He was a, a really important king, and uh, Ptolemy um, V was a really important king. And Antiochus III was a really important king. And then there's this one that came after, which was called, uh, uh, who was a Seleucid king, who was Antiochus uh, IV. And Antiochus IV Epiphanes was one of the great desecrators of Jerusalem. And that happened in about 100, and shows here, 175 to 163 B.C. Um, and that uh, he was one that, that really wanted to destroy the Jews. Didn't have any good feelings about them at all. He wanted to remove everything Jewish from the people that were there. So he perverted the high priesthood. He built uh, altars to his gods. Uh, to desecrate the altar of uh, the Jewish people. Um, he brought what they call the abomination of desolation, which was sacrifice that was um, the exact opposite of what the Jewish people would have ordained or had ordained. Uh, and he did that because he really wanted to destroy these people. And in the midst of his um, work against the Jewish people, there was... Uh, an uprising of pure Jewish uh, descendants, people that were very zealous for the law. The law being uh, the Torah, the book of the first five books of the Bible, and how important that was to not just the Jewish people's identity, but to understanding what it means to be God's people. So he actually, when he was overthrown, brought in the end of this Ptolemyan and Seleucid uh, dynasties or empires. And the, the next person that came in was the Hasmoneans. And the Hasmonean kings, as I mentioned, the great one was Herod the Great. So that's what this timeline goes through. This one here goes through the end of the Ptolemies. And then I gave you another one that kind of does a verse by verse. Um, where it breaks it into the, the sections of Daniel. So it looks at the first four verses of Daniel. 
which is about the Persians, and then the coming of this great warrior king, Alexander. And it takes verse by verse and kind of tries to lay it up against history. And I will, I will say that this is not my original work. This is work that I've uh, pulled from other, other authors and just kind of collected for you. So, but I agree with it, which is why I printed it out for you. Um, and I think it has a lot of good things to say about how when, if you try and match up history to what's being revealed in Daniel, there's a very close correspondence. You can pretty much read through the history from Alexander the Great, from actually the Persian Empire, Alexander the Great, through the Ptolemies, Seleucids, all the way to Herod, um, just reading through chapter 11. And it gives you some of the intrigue that happened. For example, when we get down to uh, the end, you find out about the intrigue that happened with uh, the north and the south are trying to make an alliance. So the king of the north, uh, the Seleucid king, gives the king of the south, the Ptolemian king, uh, his daughter as part of a, a marriage arrangement in order to you know, keep a, a power influence from the north over this Middle Eastern empire. And uh, that, that was Cleopatra. And she ended up uh, Cleopatra I, and she ended up uh, actually loving her husband instead of loving her father, and it actually caused a power shift to the south. And we actually read about it in Daniel. We'll read about this queen. And so what, what this does is it tries to lay out uh, the events of history and put it alongside um, what we're reading in Daniel. And I could go through verse by verse, and we can look at this, um, we can do it more question and answer style, where there are events in this that would, uh, you might want to ask specific questions, we can drill down. Um, but at the end of the day, what I want you to come away with is this is a message of hope to God's people. This is about God's sovereignty in the presence of evil. What happens when you look at the world and you see everything going sideways, and it makes no sense but God is in the process of redeeming his people, and that's the final message to Daniel. This is about redemption. This is about the coming of Messiah. And his final word to Daniel is, don't worry, be happy. Um, <laughs> he, basically, he basically says that. He says, rest well. Um, you're not going to understand until the final event of history is actually played out, and that's okay. Because your confidence is in me, not in, in understanding the details of history. Because God understands the details of history. And that's what this is about. And that's what we want to take away from it. Um, we should be encouraged that it matches history very exactly. Um, so, well, yeah. let's, just put, let's just do two. Okay. One of them's really easy. And, okay. And the other one, I don't know so much. Um, so this period between the testaments is kind of a period between between the testaments. Old yes, Testament yes. So this is intertestamental. Yep. Um, is an interesting period. I don't know that much about it. So the easy question is: um, you refer to the Maccabean Revolt, correct? And I know that the Catholic Bible has a book called Maccabees. Yes. I don't know that. I remember reading it. I, I don't remember what it's about, but is it, is it about this time? Yeah, it's about this dynasty that um, 
so there was there was uh, this group of religious zealots um, that uh, became prominent and politically powerful during within Israel, right? So got to remember Israel. When I say politically powerful, they would have had influence over the high priesthood. They would have had influence over the um, the Sadducean rule, so the local rule of the people. So you remember there was the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Jesus' day? The Pharisees are the descendants of the Maccabees. So the Pharisees were the ones that were very zealous for the law. And that's one of the things that Jesus said, it's good to be zealous for the law if you understand what the law is. So he wanted to explain to them the law. So we have the whole treatise, which is a collection of teachings called the Sermon on the Mount, about the law. That's actually focused towards the Pharisees. And he says in the middle of that, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds, exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll in no way enter heaven. Because he's talking about something greater, but it was the, the Pharisees and the Maccabees were the ones that were trying to preserve that greater understanding of the law. And so they're associated with the priesthood. And the Maccabees were this family um, that rose up and had um, political power, both in the priesthood and over the, the governance of the people, which was primarily through the Sadducees. So we have Pharisees and Sadducees. So the Sadducees were the guys that had the money. So when you look at what makes uh, governments work, right, it's uh, powerful people made powerful by having money backing. So which is sad to see. Yeah. They, didn't believe in the they also didn't believe in the resurrection, which is why they were sad. You see, you know? so, they, they they were more concerned. The Sadducees, if you if you were to ask a Jewish uh, person in that particular camp of the Sadducees, what was uh, most important, they would say that the Jewish race is preserved. Right. So they were about preserving the Jewish race, not about preserving. The, the priesthood and the understanding of the law, they weren't um, into Torah or Talmud. They were into preserving the people at any cost. So they were the ones that would have made an alliance with Rome. And you have this balance of the two. So you have the administrators, which were the Sadducees, and they had the money and the political power. And then you had the religious cult, um, and I say cult in a good way, you know, it's the practice of the religion, which was in the Pharisees. The Pharisees descended from the Maccabees. The Sadducees, uh, in many ways, came through, um, at the time of Jesus, the Hasmonean line. So who, were the, who was the king uh, of the Jews in Jesus' day? Herod's sons. And so they were descendants of these Hasmoneans, of which one group of Hasmoneans were the descendants of the Maccabees, and the others were the, the more administrative, <coughs> and that's where you got the great building programs and that kind of stuff, the big well. Okay, so that was the easy question. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the more important question is about the Septuagint. So, yes. Um, I mean, the reason that we have this today is primarily because of the Septuagint, I think. Check me on that. Well, but, I, would, I would disagree, but that's okay. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. <laughs> um, anyway, so I, I had no idea that this uh, 
called me to murder his brother, marry his sister. Yes, <laughs> yes. And yet he was the one, apparently, I, I, I haven't known this, I, and I've been to Alexandria, but, you know, it's, but that library was a wealth yeah. of uh, knowledge and history. Oh, yeah. But was this the guy that, it, that got together, the 70, you know, the whole Septuagint thing? Yes. It's so, counter, it's counterintuitive. Yeah, well, it's counterintuitive. So uh, Alexander the Great, when he died in Babylon, um, and they go to bury him. Where did they bury him? Egypt. That was weird. That's right. And that was the actual foundation of Alexandria, which was a seat of Greek uh, culture and knowledge. Built a great library there. Right? So what happened is, is that the Jews... Uh, as a result of the captivity, so you remember they were um, somewhat unified, even though they were a divided nation. They had a northern part, Israel, and a southern part, Judea. Um, the northern part was destroyed by the Assyrians and resettled. That's where we get um, the Samaritans from. It was a syncretic uh, culture where they had taken Judaism and the Torah and melded it with other uh, religions. And they still practice that today, by the way. So if you go to Mount Gerizim, they still have a place where they do the annual sacrifice on the, the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. And so um, they, were, they were the northern part of Israel. southern part was Judea. They got destroyed. The Assyrians came up against Judea, and that was during Hezekiah's reign. And if you read your Bible, you find out that Hezekiah, a man of God and a man of prayer, um, prayed and asked for deliverance, and God gave him deliverance. So Hezekiah is known as a, a great king of faith. One of his descendants, Josiah, was a reformer king, that when um, the, the word, the Torah, was discovered in the temple and presented to him, he read it, and he had it read to the people, and he instituted reform to bring people back to the heart of Judaism, and he was a Judean king, um, and at that point, Assyria had wiped out the north. All that was left was Judea. What came in is the Babylonians then destroyed uh, the descendants of uh, Josiah. Josiah uh, was a king, and in, in he was probably before Daniel's uh, life because Daniel was a young man when he went into captivity. But he was certainly there with Jeremiah um, and other contemporaries of Daniel. So... You know, looking at, at time, you have this little kind of unified nation of Israel. Well, when, the, when this final captivity happened, Babylonians came in and they just did, they had a scorched earth policy, right? We are going to level it. We're not going to necessarily resettle it. We might leave the peasants in the land so that it doesn't go, you know, to all weeds. But their goal was to take the wealth out of the land, take the people out of the land, and if it was resettled, it would be resettled by Babylonians. It would not be resettled by, um, by like the uh, Assyrians tried to do in melding cultures. They would replace the culture. That's what the, the Babylonian program was, replace the culture. That's why Daniel went to university, right? Because he was going to become Babylonian to replace the culture. And uh, he was, uh, because he was of a, uh, an aristocrat, aristocratic family, he was a leader uh, by birth, and that's why he went to university, right? What ended up happening was that uh, in the midst of this scorched earth policy, Nebuchadnezzar completely leveled Jerusalem, um, left nothing but the peasants in the land, 
later, um, when the Persians came along, they made a decree under law that the Jews could return without taking the culture of the Babylonians or the Persians and resettle the land. But they were never, ever, from that point forward, a free peoples. Right? So they were always under some uh, other form of empire rule at that point. So when we look, what happened is, is that the Babylonians ruled the Jews, the Persians, Medo-Persians ruled the Jews, the Greeks ruled the Jews. Um, this later dynasty of the, of the Greeks ruled until the Hasmoneans came in, and then it was more of a puppet king through Herod, right? He was not a true Jew. He was uh, an Edomite by birth. So that's the way that it persisted. So in that diaspora, when this, the Jews were spread out throughout the world, they went to Greek centers of learning and culture. So they went to Alexandria. That's where the Septuagint came from. So the Greek, the Jews, this, this zeal, zealousness for both the law and the zealousness for preserving the peoples um, kind of came together in Alexandria and uh, 70 um, rabbis came together and put together the Greek scriptures, the Old Testament. And that's called the Septuagint. Right? So that's what it is. So you know, we complain about the NIV today being done by a, a group of uh, Greek scholars and editors. Well, that's what these guys were. They were Greek scholars and editors. They were scribes. And they put together the Septuagint. That... Uh, there's a date for that in here, but that occurred in uh, the 3rd century B.C. Um, so that predates some of these final activities like Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He was subsequent to the Septuagint being written, which is, and Daniel was in the Septuagint. So people that want to put a late date on Daniel, you have to answer the question, how did these guys that were Greek scholars in Alexandria take a prophecy written by a guy uh, which we would say this was a, a person that lived in uh, 500 BC um, you know five, uh, six, probably 620 to um, 535 BC so he had a, a pretty long life um, and that's our understanding of who wrote it but other people would say this is so stinking accurate when you map it I mean, we're going to go through here, and we're going to look at this line for line in the Bible. It matches history. And so a lot of people say there's no way that that could happen unless it was written after the fact. But the Septuagint includes Daniel, right? So it couldn't have happened after the fact. And, and what it is is, is about who do you, what kind of God do we have? Do we have a God that really can declare the end from the beginning? which is what he says in Isaiah? Or do we have a God that has to take history after it's already occurred and then make it fit into some theological framework that we want to understand? Right? And so I, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but um, that's where the Septuagint fits in, in this process. There was a, the Greeks, um, because that was the, the predominant culture and language of trade of the day, um, the Jewish rabbis learned that and then converted their scriptures into Greek. And that's what we call the Hellenization 
of uh, the culture at that point. So a lot of these people actually became very Greek. And when you look at later heresies that occurred, so what are some of the heresies that occurred in the New Testament times? First heresy that, that was really predominant in the first century A.D. So Jesus came, he fulfilled the law. The church was born in 35 A.D., or 33 A.D. actually, 33 A.D., the church was born, and in 30, by 35 A.D. it had grown to this uh, huge group of believers in Jerusalem, and then a persecution came, and they were spread out all over the place, and it just started taking off everywhere it went. And guess where they went? They went to Alexandria, they went to uh, Antioch in Syria. Those were the seats of power for the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, right? And it, they went to Rome, seat of power for the current government, Rome, right? So as they went out, um, all of a sudden, the attack on that uh, truth of the gospel came. And it came through Greek venues. So what happened is, is that people would bring their Hellenistic Greek culture and they'd try and overlay it on Christianity. And one of the things about Greek culture is that the gods and the humans never meet. Right? So it's not possible for the divine that which is God, to actually enter into physical reality. They had to be separated. And that that separation led to a couple of uh, heresies. One's called Gnosticism, where they had a series of emanations to separate God from man until you got a mostly good man, right, that could represent God, and that's how they viewed Jesus. So he wasn't really God. And we have all sorts of heresies around Gnostic belief that persist to this day. So one of the ones that came around in the 3rd century A.D. was uh, by, uh, oh, I had this like Brindis, so I can't remember his name. Um, but it's the, it's the foundation for what the Jehovah's Witness believe today, that Jesus is not God. Um, and there was the reason for the councils of the church to formulate uh, canon of scripture number one and to formulate uh, orthodox doctrine number two so the Nicene Creed which was in 325 uh, AD was all about fighting this Greek heresy called Gnosticism and then there was another one that said well um, Jesus truly a man and God was on him came upon him as a dove but there was a separation inside of Jesus between the human and the divine. And on the cross, he, uh, God left him, right? And he just had the appearance of God. And so that would be docetism. And so all of these kinds of heresies, they came out of this Greek Hellenistic culture. So what we're looking at here in Daniel and these wars of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, that's the preservation of that culture and the establishment of that through things like the Septuagint and other things that, that uh, you see that Hellenistic culture coming in. It's still prevalent today. People still wrestle with these same issues that are Greek today. The whole modern era, okay, so what is modernism? I know I'm going off on a rabbit trail here, but what is modernism? No oh, that would be postmodernism. So modernism, there, there's there was a, the time of Jesus and the early that led to the early church 
they went where um, the, the church became the state religion under Constantine. And as it progressed, that era of time is called medieval. right? And in the medieval time, um, people believed that there was more of uh, a correspondence between spiritual reality and physical reality. And that um, the main goal was to become a good spiritual person. Because if you were healthy spiritually, you would be healthy physically. Now the perversion of that is a form of uh, animism where um, you can actually affect the physical uh, by manipulating the spiritual. So you would have witchcraft and things like that that would emerge as part of that understanding of how reality was. Reality being a, a melding of, of spiritual and physical reality. Well, in the modern era, what happened is, is there was a clear distinction. The physical reality and the spiritual reality were completely separate. And the world is viewed now as a machine. That that's what science does, right? It tries to take apart the machine to figure out how the machine works. Because if we can master the machine, we can master the universe. We can master uh, medicine to take away illness. We can manipulate genetics to uh, bring about a cure for all diseases. In fact, we can even prevent diseases from even occurring by catching it in the, in the genetic malfunction that causes it. And this has all sorts of moral implications that we understand are, pre are prevalent today. That's what the modern era is. It's a separation that the physical is just a machine. It's separate from us, and we can master it, right? That isn't what the creation account is. The creation account is that man was created uh, a, a, with a body, but a spirit and a soul, and that God actually breathed into us the breath of life, and that the two are united. So in many ways, the medieval mind was closer to reality than the modern mind. Now what happens is, is when you take modernism to its extreme and you say, okay, um, physical reality is separate from spiritual reality, the next step is let's kill God. Because God's just a creation of man anyway. That's what Nietzsche said. And so let's kill God. Let's take away the spiritual. So now it's all about the physical. It's a natural philosophy. Right? Um, and you're you're separated from any kind of spiritual guidance or construct in any form. So morality has no basis, um, and things become relative. What I call truth is just my truth. So what I'm telling you now is just my ideas. Take it, do with it what you want. You have your own truth. When you take that to its ex full extent in postmodernism, you end up in hopelessness, right? Well. What God has given us is a message of hope, that that isn't the way that reality works. Reality is both a spiritual, physical reality. We were created to have a physical body that is part of God's creation, that is connected to him in life. That's what heaven is. We get a new body. Right? So we read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When we are raised from the dead, we're not raised as um, ghosts, right? We are given a new body that's incorruptible that is like Jesus's. That's what it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. It says, when he appears, Christ, we will be as he is. 
I'm going to take you there just because this is foundational to what actually what we're looking at in Daniel. Daniel sets the stage for this. This is the message of hope that we're given. If you go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, we read, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Let me unpack that for you really quick. It says, when Christ, and then there's what they call, uh, uh, this is a, a phrase that uh, I won't even bother naming it, but what it is, it's like an equal sign. And we do this all the time. You'll have kind of a parenthetical comment that you'll inject, and that really what you're doing is you're equating that phrase to something that you've already stated. So in this case, it's talking about Christ. And he is equal to our life. So the very life of Christ that was raised from the dead on the third day that came to his people and, and they had witnessed that he was really real and that he wasn't a ghost, that he ate with them, he broke bread with them, he ate fish with them, he spent time with them, and they saw him physically ascend into heaven. Not like... Um, a transporter where you step in and you get atomized and all of a sudden you know you're gone and appear somewhere else. That isn't what happened. Christ, full body, ascended into heaven. That's what it says in the Bible. This is our testimony. And a lot of people saw this. That's the testimony of Paul in chapter 15 of, of uh, Corinthians. That's what we are supposed to be. We are supposed to have a body that the spirit within us that animates this body is in direct communion with God. That's what it says here. When Christ, who equals our life, the life that we have, the promise of eternal life, is his life. His life is eternal. When it is revealed, then we'll be revealed with him in glory. So what we understand is, is that there's a second coming of Christ. There was a first coming of Christ, and he ascended, and the angel said... What are you looking at? You know, just as you saw him ascend, you're going to see him descend. That's what they said in the day of Pentecost. That's what the angel gave testimony to. And that we understand that Christ is right now in heaven as our advocate. So when the accusation comes against you by the enemy of your soul who desires to destroy you, Christ is right there saying, yeah, but I paid for that. My very life, which cannot be extinguished, is the life of Tim is the life of David, is the life of Karen. My life is their life. And that's what's promised to us, eternal life. And that comes through communion with Christ. And that's what it talks about in Revelation. So that's the message of hope that's actually here in Daniel. You get this, you get this story about how the world's all messed up. You got this intrigue, guy murdering his brother and marrying his, his sister, and, and you've got... Um, you know, a, a, a wife that comes along and kills her husband and brother and then tries to do some intrigue and then she dies off. and All this kind of intrigue and stuff that you could put on soap operas today and it'd be really popular. Right? <laughs> Seriously. This is, a, this is great material. Um, and when they put it in, in movies and stuff and make it Hollywood, it, it garners an audience. Because this is the kind of intrigue that people understand is the kingdom of the world that they're so enamored with. And what Daniel's saying is, yeah, 
going to happen. But don't worry. We get to chapter 12. We get to chapter 12, um, and I'll just read chapter 12, because I think we read through chapter 11. And I might not have time to read chapter 11. It says, Now at that time Michael the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. So when we read that, we need to read that this is the end. Right? Never occurred before. This is it. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. This is about God's redemptive plan. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, those to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So what's, what's being revealed here is that you are an eternal being, either in the presence of God or apart from the presence of God. And if you're in the presence of God, we would call that heaven. And if you're apart from the presence of God, we would call that hell. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So this is a promise of what that nation that has been preserved from the time of Abraham until the time of the very end of human history, what their job is. They are to to stand for God, right? They are to lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's what they're to do. And guess what? We get to join them as the church in that mission. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river and he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. So he's giving us insight into that end time, what's going to happen, how the political intrigues are going to play out. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up to the end time. In other words, nobody's going to understand it unless you're standing there right at the end. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. But the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. And we can talk about that next week. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age for your inheritance. Our inheritance is in God. Our eternal life is in God. That's what this is about. This is about a message that, don't worry. Be happy. Sure enough, bad stuff happens. It does. It's going to. And we may actually get caught up in the middle of it. What you don't want to have happen is the innocent be be shot in the drive-by shooting. It isn't for you. But nonetheless, it happens. If that happens, we know for certainty that in the end we will be with Christ. And if we live until that final day, we know for a certainty that we will be together with Christ. 
And we have that full revelation in the New Testament that we'll be caught up with him into the clouds, right? First Thessalonians. We know that um, our security, which is one of the foundational things that we need, and uh, the purpose of our life, which is another foundational thing that we need to live, is in Christ, holy, that is answered in God, in Christ. And that we are indwelt by the Spirit as part of living in this age. So, uh, I know I said a whole lot, and I don't know that I really answered your question. Um, I can say, we're done. We got through chapter 12. Um, And get from you guys, where do you want to go next? So, uh, we can do, where do you want to go next? And I'll take one more week in Daniel next week. I really want to do a summation on Daniel. There's so yeah. many good things, takeaways you yep. know, on that. So hopefully we'll have a week. In that. Yeah, so we'll take next week, and I will unpack a little bit more if you're more interested in the, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and the alignment of history. I've given it to you. It's, it's printed out. Um, if you didn't get a copy, I can get you a copy, and you want a copy. Uh, so, so that's not an issue. Next week we'll do the final wrap-up. We'll put it all together. And then we need to go on to our next subject, which you guys get to pick. So I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer, and then we'll take a couple of seconds. Those that have to leave can leave, but um, those that can stay, maybe you can tell me what you want to study next. So, Lord, uh, we thank you for opportunity to come together this morning, and I just thank you so much for your, your plan of redemption that was from the very beginning, Lord, um, because you love us so dearly that you're... Uh, going to the actual extent of the universe to redeem us, that you've gone into death itself to conquer death um, and bring us back to you and make a way that we can actually be in your life, be in Christ. And Lord, um, even though it's a mystery to us, it'll be so clear when our eyes are opened. And Lord, we just thank you for what you're doing, even in our, our dark understanding that you can enlighten us and bring hope in this present age through a faithful servant of yours, Daniel. And Lord, we just thank you for this. We thank you for the events of this day and this week that you've ordained for us. Lord, we ask that you would protect us, that you would provide for us. And we thank you, Lord, so much for your service to us. That which you've done in your, your death on the cross and in your life in us through the Spirit. Lord, we thank you for that. And we lift all these things in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.